0: So yesterday, I had an incredible day of music in New York City, the kind of thing that you remember for a long time. I woke up late and took a little bike ride around the park and then headed up to Central Park to see a long three-part concert that celebrates the 40th anniversary of the independence of the island of Cabo Verde, which is off the coast of Africa and was a Portuguese colony until 1975, if you believe it. Uh, there's some beeping. So the first person on the bill was Dino Santiago. And he was a really skilled singer, kind of in the R&B vein, wearing fancy kind of 21st century looking uh, model type clothes and with a band of uh, guys who mostly looked like they were from Cape Verde. too. Uh, really great, smooth, and technically proficient pianist playing a grand piano. and. Um, And his music was just wonderful. There was just, there was some of these wonderful Portuguese, Brazilian-style rhythms underlying it that were mellower than you're used to from Brazil, a sort of of, um, toned down, but still very funky uh, rhythm that I'm not that familiar with. But then the next performance was really what blew me away. A singer that a couple of people had warned me was just incredible, Uh, whose name is Mayra Andragi, M-A-Y-R-A-A-N-D-R-A-D-E. And holy cow, was she just a full-on genius. Technically flawless performance, such magnetic pitch and such control of dynamics and tone and everything you know, balance between her chest and head registers and subtle details and really strong belting and everything in between, improvisation and scripted stuff just flowing together so you couldn't tell what was what. And her band was a bunch of French guys, it turned out, because she lives in Paris now. So, um, sort of, you know, sophisticated jazz players who were putting lots of different textures behind her and lots of rhythms, too but putting the technical stuff aside i mean she was just so expressive and there was just so much feeling and emotion in her voice that even if i didn't speak portuguese if i didn't speak french if i didn't understand her english if i didn't if i didn't know anything about the tradition or the place that she comes from which is pretty much true you could just you could just feel so much by being in the presence of her voice and That's a rare thing. You close your eyes and it's like someone, actually a friend of mine who was with me, commented that if she closed her eyes, she could be any age. I mean, she could be 14, she could be 70. She had a sort of smoky, husky thing that um, reminded me a little bit of Cesaria Evora, who was the the woman to whom this concert was dedicated. Um, But she also had this very pure tone that could be very airy and innocent, and she seemed to be able to put some edge on it and, and cut through the texture when she needed to, to make a statement, and she, she just sort of had everything. It was like this fully balanced persona, just in her sound. And then, if you opened your eyes and looked at her, it was just electrifying, almost to the point of scary. I had to turn away a couple times because her presence and her attention was just too much for me. And it's not that it was particularly intense, like it felt like a sort of relaxed awareness Um, but somehow she managed to take all of the awareness and attention of this group of hundreds of people in a big outdoor stadium who were gathered to hear her sing and just totally comfortably uh, contain it. Like she kept her, it felt like herself or her persona was big enough to expand, to, to f- hold all of that attention and more, and just funnel it back to us right through her face. And her face was interesting. It wasn't necessarily conventionally beautiful, um, although I found myself more than once feeling attracted to her just because of the magnetic energy of her performance. But I mean, she was beautiful. She was very beautiful. But I think what I was noticing was just there's a kind of... um kind of mojo or a kind of, <laughs> like, a kind of presence that she had that was just totally seductive, like, like a sort of, um, like a knowingness of the bitterness and the tragedy and also the sweetness and the joy of life that was just being channeled through her eyes and through her face um, that everyone could feel and therefore relax a little bit with each other because all of us were feeling really known, uh, and then with her voice, she was just sort of continuing to express the the extremes of human experience in this way that was just so beautiful and so, dare I say, perfect, um. So the kind of thing that doesn't really happen very often. And honestly, it was incredibly hopeful for me to feel that music could be that, and that one person could sing that way. And it was also a little bit, for my ego, a little bit dispiriting. Because like, Jesus, if that's what performing really is, then what am I doing pretending (laughs) that I have anything to do with it, you know? Um, Even just seeing the band that came after her, which was a Cesaria Evora tribute band with three lead singers, um, all of whom were great. all of whom were brilliant singers in their own right, and one of whom sounded just like Caesarea Evra, but still the like, that sort of magnetic electric presence and seduction and total total divaness for lack of a better word, was just missing. And everyone, I think, felt the letdown. Like, no amount of rhythm and energy in the music could compensate for that, for that. And uh, so. It was, a, it was like five hours on my feet, dancing to loud music in the blazing sun, and it was beautiful. And I felt like I had just been to Cape Verde and back, and I wanted to book my next trip ASAP. But then I, I stumbled home, and I was on the subway, and got to 14th Street, and just had this little moment of like, I need to go hear some jazz. So. I got off the subway, and as one does in New York, I just ambled down to the Blue Note, and I was 10 minutes late for the 8 o'clock show, but they still had a couple seats left for Eddie Palmieri and his sextet. Now, Eddie Palmieri is a name I've been hearing for my whole life, and I think he was big in the 60s, so this guy must be in his 80s, and he's still performing, and who knows, maybe this is his last time at the Blue Note. So. And this was last night at the Blue Note in this run. So I felt lucky to get in. And I sat down at the only seat that was available across from a beautiful French journalist who was uh, writing about jazz and was taking notes on everything Eddie said. Listened to the music, and holy cow. I mean, there was some weird, improvised, sort of heavy-handed. Um, Rubato introductions that involve just the piano or the piano and bass, and I was sort of like, "What? Really? This guy is an amazing pianist. It sounds like, sounds like he's just has one volume, which is loud, and one vibe, which is whatever." But then some nuances came in, and I started giving in to this way he was playing as just his own personal expression. And then the percussion and the, and the horns came in, and holy crap, what an amazing music. And to, th- and to be in the presence of, of this electrifying fusion of jazz and traditional Cuban music... Um, in the presence of someone who basically pioneered that format, the idea of um, of combining those things and playing them with a large orchestra or with a small group and legitimized and basically forged the path for Latin jazz, which is now such a big tent, it was really amazing. And uh, he did a lot of talking about the history of jazz and about how jealous he was of, like, everyone, <laughs> including, like, all the young guys in the band and—and, and, uh— bunch of other pianists. And then at the end of the show, um, this French journalist's boyfriend showed up, and he was sitting next to her, and he, he was a really interesting character, a young, quiet, black guy with glasses, who I eventually learned was from Cuba and was a pianist in his own right. And I looked him up later, and he's got really gorgeous stuff, played with Esperanza Spalding, and totally um, legitimate awesome band leader and composer and great Cuban jazz pianist, but I, all I knew was that this guy was just sitting across from me at this table, and we had just heard Eddie Palmieri and his sextet blow the lid off of some Latin jazz. So we got into a little conversation, and I expressed something like what I just said about, the, um, about feeling like Eddie's piano playing, especially in the introductions, felt a little bit rough. And I, w- I was wondering, because it didn't seem my way in his recordings, whether that was a choice or whether maybe he had arthritis and was aging. And, um, and uh, the Cuban pianist across from me had a really interesting response to that. I mean, at first he basically said, look, perfection in music doesn't exist. It's a myth. And, um, I was sort of interested to hear why he was so strongly pushing that, but I basically agreed with him and, you know, told him that, yeah, this idea of playing perfectly or even playing like something that sounds good, but well, sounds pretty innocuous and like, worth wanting, is uh, something that pulls us away often from accepting the music we're able to make. And so there's sort of like this practicing mind, which is so useful for developing skills that can sort of seep into and infect your relationship with performing and just making music um, in your free time and it can poison things and so i agreed with him that this perfection was not just an imaginary but it was also potentially really damaging and then i don't know exactly how we got onto the the topic but i ended up asking him like so what you know So what do you think about when you're making music? And I told him that I tried to think about just expressing where I was or who I was or trying to tell a story, or better yet, expressing nothing and just just making something that needed to come out. So he surprised me. He answered that he felt like perfection does exist in nature in the shapes and forms of nature, but it only exists insofar as you pull away from them and get distance. So you might be zooming into the shrubs at your feet or the dust on the ground and seeing all the imperfections, but if you pull away to a giant vista of a mountain landscape or look at the clouds from a distance, then suddenly you see all this form and beauty and perfection. So. I was taking that in, just trying to accept it for what it was, even though I wasn't sure I 100% agreed. And then he said, and that is what I try to think about when I'm making music. That sense of form and design and perfection that exists in nature, trying to somehow channel that into the work of my hands and to let go of the idea of making something that's perfect. And... um, really just make something that has the kind of shape that I see around me when I take some perspective. And I was thinking about that and wondering whether possibly Myra Andragi, this amazing singer from Cape Verde that I had seen earlier that day, was looking out into the crowd not into individual faces, but into the aggregate of the crowd and somehow channeling the scope of the emotions and wisdom and minds of the people that you saw there and the beauty or maybe even perfection that was latent there and trying to channel all that into something that we could all seize our attention onto in that instant.